the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode 20. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Today's podcast is a continuation of the last podcast. Uh, we've had the privilege of interviewing uh, Baroness Caroline Cox and hearing about her amazing, incredible life story and all that she's been through, uh, a life of struggle, suffering, depression, she's been honest enough to admit as well. Um, and just seeing how some of the incredible experiences that she's been through have been a crucible of fire, of challenge in times of um, what God has for her and how her life has panned out, particularly as the founder of an organisation called Heart. Uh, let me just say hi, welcome again, Caroline. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here uh, in the Oxfordshire countryside with you here as well. Um, as I said, Caroline's a remarkable woman because she's a grandmother, grandmother of uh, 10, 10, 10 grandchildren. But as I said in the last podcast, she's not your average grandmother. She was playing squash till she was age 60, tennis till her 70s. And as I said earlier on, um, also become the founder of an organization called Heart. She's very she's a baroness in the House of Lords. And in, in the last podcast, which I commend you to listen to if you haven't listened to already, that goes through her life. We also talked about how she's very passionate about equality of Muslim women and the and the injustice that they suffer. And I do want to commend you to go to a website, www.equalandfree.org. Is that right, Caroline? Yeah. And Absolutely just, correct. And just tell us a little bit, little, little bit more about that, about that um, website. Well, that website will give you all the information about the private members bill I have in Parliament, trying to draw attention to the gender discrimination inherent in Sharia law, which is causing so much suffering to Muslim women in this country, as well as other countries, and the threat to the fundamental principle of one law for all, when we've signed uh, 800 years of Magna Carta celebrations, uh, going back to pre-Magna Carta days with a parallel legal system, it's got a lot of support, the bill, in Parliament from members of all parties. And it, the website will also give you the media coverage and also indicate that this work is supported by Muslim women's organisations who are really suffering in this country in ways that make our suffragettes turn in their graves. So part of my remit of trying to be a voice for the voiceless is addressing uh, this very real problem, especially for Muslim women suffering under Sharia law in this country. Yeah, so we'll have a link to that website, www.equalandfree.org, uh, on on the blog post at drsunil.com that goes with uh, this podcast and the previous one as well. 
But today, you know, we're going to carry on interviewing Caroline and talk about the organisation that she started called HEART, Humanitarian, Humanitarian Aid and Relief Trust. Um, and very helpfully, in terms of what its vision is, it, it's described with the four A's. The aid for forgotten people often trapped behind closed borders, advocacy for oppressed and persecuted people, accountability that our message is accurate and sensitive, and authenticity based on personal visits to obtain first-hand evidence for the purposes of advocacy and the appropriate use of aid. Very interesting organisation. And Caroline, as we said in the last podcast, you've travelled, you're not the average grandmother, you've travelled to Nagorno-Karabakh 83 times, you've you spent six months of the year outside of the country. Tell us a little bit about why and how you founded HEART. Well, may I say I love my family and I love seeing the grandchildren when I do, but I found it hard about 10 years ago to fill some gaps. First of all, the major aid organisations, the names we all know like the UN, can only go places with the permission of a sovereign government. And if a sovereign government is victimising a minority in its own borders, doesn't give permission to those aid organisations to take aid or to reach those victims, then they don't go. So the victims are left unreached, unhelped, unheard. Now, as a Christian, we have a biblical mandate to heal the sick, feed the hungry, speak for the oppressed. And these are people without a voice and very often in huge need of help in war zones or post-conflict situations. And so we, in heart, try to reach them. It means that sometimes we cross borders illegally, unofficially, but perfectly shamelessly to be with the most lost, last and least. So Hart really founded to reach with aid and advocacy victims of oppressive regimes who are not being served by the major aid organisations. It also fills a gap because there are well-known advocacy or human rights organisations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, who do very good reports, but they don't bring aid within their terms of reference. There are good aid organisations like Médecins Sans Frontières known around the world, but very often they will not do advocacy because it may interfere with their aid. So Hart tries to bring those together, aid and advocacy, for people off the radar screen of major media and often not reached by major aid organisations. Yes, and your vision for that work for, for, for Hart, and we'll have it, oh, by the way, we'll have a, a link to the... A website for what? What is the website for Heart? What, what's it? It's www.hart-uk.org.uk-uk.org. Yeah, and we'll have a link of that on on drsignal.com as well with the, with the with the blog post that goes with this podcast. But the inspiration for that really started with with Poland, didn't it? As well. Tell us about that. Well, many years ago, once I got this strange title of being a baroness, which is a huge privilege. And you, if you haven't heard of that story, that's an amazing story on the previous podcast. <laughs> it's God's sense of humour. I wasn't into politics. I yes. didn't like politics. And as I said then, I was the first baroness I'd ever met. Yeah. But of course, you become a baroness being appointed to the House of Lords, which is part of the British Parliament, and a privilege to be able to use Parliament to be a voice for those who don't have a voice. And way back in the 1980s, just after I'd got this strange title, you get invited to be a patron of organisations. And this was way back in the days of Soviet communism. And the Solidarity Movement uh, had broken up, broken out rather, with great courage in Poland and Lech Walesa was the famous Solidarity leader. And of course, the Soviet Union cracked down big time and it imposed military 
um, sorry, it imposed martial law, which is a complete crackdown on all human rights and a totalitarian control raised to a very high level. And Lech Walesa realised this was going to be a tough time for Polish people, so he sent out an SOS. One of the responses in Britain was the establishment of Medical Aid for Poland Fund. They asked if I'd be a patron, and I said, honoured, I have a huge respect for Polish people. But then I think the seeds were born. I didn't just want to be a name on the writing paper. So I said, well, but only on the condition that, as appropriate, I can travel on the trucks to make sure the aid gets through, isn't stolen by some communist apparatchik, but also to be able to come back and say, I have been, I have seen, this is how it really is. So then I found myself living the life of a truck driver for a week at a time on these huge, great 32-tonne trucks. Now, I'm not a truck driver. And you're not very big either. You're not very tall either. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but there were no hotels or motels in Poland in those days. You had to live on the truck with your truck driver for a week at a time. And I can tell you the top bunk of a 32-tonne truck is very narrow. You can't lie on your side, you can't read. Sometimes a little challenging in the middle of the winter when a lovely truck driver would push off the road onto some lay-by, crash out on the bottom bunk, I'd climb onto the top bunk, and my lovely truck driver would smoke toxic Polish cigarettes all night with the window shut. But that was nothing compared to the suffering of the Polish people. There was nothing in the clinics. I went to hospitals where there was nothing. People would queue for hours because they heard food was going to come into a shop, often in the bitter winter, in the snow. People would die in those queues. So the situation in Poland was horrendous. Life expectancy was dropping in southern Poland. Only 3% of men lived to retirement age. Infant mortality was rocketing. Um, All sorts of diseases were growing from pollution and it was a very, very difficult time for the Polish people. But I always came back just so inspired by their courage, their generosity, their faith, their humour. They kept humour going even in a terrible situation Mm. and miracles of grace. Wow. And your work in Poland um, really as it were, was really commi- was very much commended because you were given the um, Commander Cross of the Order of Merit from the Polish government, which is their highest award. What a privilege. A special privilege to be awarded by people for whom I had such respect. But one little story about totalitarianism. Um, I was travelling on a truck with a British truck driver and we'd been going to Warsaw and to another city and we ended up the border town of Rotswoff. We arrived there at midnight, so it was too early to disturb. Uh, the priests used to work through the churches because they knew who the people really in need were and we could trust them. But at six o'clock, I was woken up by the sound of the bells of the cathedral ringing, so went in and it was a full, wonderful service, absolutely packed at six in the morning. Mm. And then came out and it was time to start the offload. Now, the offload was always surrounded by KGB, by security staff and so on. And Tony was my truck driver, lovely Cockney guy, been a really good companion for a week. And I was running the gauntlet, taking the medical supplies through this kind of corridor of KGB and secret service agents and so on into the priest's house, came back to the truck and found Tony swearing like a trooper. For the first time in the week, he had lost it. He'd gone ballistic with rage. And I said, well, that's the matter, Tony. And I won't repeat his language, but you can imagine, the good cockney. But he said, look at something, something, this. And I looked, and it was two boxes of blank computer 
printout paper. And I said, what's the deal, Tony? Two boxes of blank paper. He said, don't use something we'll realise we could be in prison for this. And I said, well, I didn't actually, Tony, if that's the case, shut up. You know, walls, the canvas walls of a truck aren't very sort of soundproof. Mm. So I said, shut up. And I said, we can't leave them here because they'll be seen. So give me a box or something else and I'll put it underneath and hope I get through this gauntlet. So what was this paper, sir? Blank it? computer. Printer. Yeah. Paper, just blank paper. Right. And, what, and what was wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you in a moment. Anyhow, I got through the corridor twice. Tony went back to England. I stayed that night with a Polish doctor because I wanted to know more about the situation in Poland. And I said, I don't understand. We had two boxes of blank computer printout paper. Tony said we could be in prison for that. He's experienced. Why? She said, don't you understand? This is a totalitarian society. In a totalitarian society, blank paper is dangerous. You can write ideas on it. Wow. And you could certainly be in prison for that. Just for blank sheets of what paper. What price freedom. Yes. And as you heard in the previous podcast, I was going back to an academic department that wanted to impose that kind of totalitarianism in our free society. But that was the feeling of the fine detail of the nature of totalitarianism. My goodness me. Also, when you were in Poland, you, 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 had this, um, you had this voice when God spoke to you about share the darkness. Now, that's, that was quite fascinating, wasn't it? On one of our visits to Poland, I had a Polish truck driver on this occasion. We broke down. It was February, freezing cold, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a Polish forest in northern Poland. Well, a truck driver went off to get help, so I was left alone in the cab of the truck, pitch dark, freezing cold, on my own. And I said, OK, God, I'm very bad at obeying that requirement. Be still and know that I am God. Not much choice here, God, is there? <laughs> Over to you. And the message came very clearly, share the darkness. And I thought, yeah, this is a place of real darkness. What can ever bring an end to this evil empire? You've got the huge Soviet Warsaw Pact forces. You've got this controlling totalitarian empire what can ever bring freedom, a way out of this dark situation? And I was really depressed. Mm. Anyway, the truck driver came back and we went on our way. And amazing, that summer, Poland emerged into freedom and democracy, the first country to come out of Soviet communism. Praise the Lord without bloodshed. Blood yeah. had been shed earlier, but on that occasion, it emerged into freedom and a democracy. Yes. We went back in August with another truck of medical supplies because we knew the needs would still be huge. But on that visit, you breathed the air of freedom. There wasn't an iron mm. curtain. You didn't have to worry about the KGB following everywhere. And there was now a democratically elected parliament. And I was invited by the democratically elected parliament to their parliament building. One of the happiest days in my life. People I'd met in and out of prison, paying the price of freedom in a totalitarian society, now democratically elected. And the chairman of the parliament said to me, thank you for coming. We wanted to invite you here so we could say thank you for sharing our darkness. Amazing. And it was an amazing echo of that message, share the darkness in the cab of that truck in the dark in that yeah. Polish forest in February of that year. Here, people saying thank you for sharing our darkness. And it's an amazing story because I'm just sort of thinking, if you think about nighttime as well when it's so dark and it seems, yeah, so dark and bleak. And it, we know each day... The sun rises, well, the sun rises and sometimes it's a beautiful day, but the light comes out. And so the darkness does not ultimately win, although it can feel like that. And in our lowest motives, and if we're struggling with depression as well, 
it can feel like that as well. But that it, there's a bigger story, a bigger battle uh, going on as well. Um, just on that one, can I just yeah. share a little story? Please. Again, from Poland in those dark days, when I was there, I was told a true story of a 12-year-old Polish boy mm. who in the middle of the Warsaw Uprising at the end of World War II, <laughs> when the people of Warsaw rose up and then Nazi forces absolutely crushed them and they blitzkrieged Warsaw. Warsaw was absolutely flattened. And in the middle of that terrible um, blitzkrieg on Warsaw, when it was must have been hell on earth, a 12-year-old Polish boy with the shells coming in and buildings burning and being flattened all around him, people dying, maybe his own death imminent, wrote these words on a wall. I believe in the sun, even when I cannot see it. I believe in love, even when I cannot feel it. Wow. And I often use that story speaking in schools. I love the word enthusiasm. The literal meaning of the word enthusiasm is God in us. And I think that story of that 12-year-old Polish boy is the ultimate example of enthusiasm. We all have the dark days when we don't see the sun. But as you said, we know the sun is still there. And we all have days when we don't feel love. Lots of mornings I wake up, I don't feel in the least bit loving. But then I have to remind myself, love isn't feeling. Love is doing. Faith without deeds is dead. Love without action is dead. So I love saying to the school students, other people I'm talking to, don't worry if you don't feel love. Love is doing. Be the love. Live the love. And then you will be. And the feelings loving. will follow. Yeah. And the feelings will eventually follow. Wonderful. That was Poland. Um, and just, you know, uh, and then Romania as well. That's another country very yeah. close to your heart. We went many times to Romania in the dark days again of Soviet communism in the notorious Ceausescu era. And one of the worst things for Romania at that time, everything was bad, but particularly for children, particularly for orphans. And the condition in the orphanages was horrific. So I went several times and visited the orphanages around Aradia, Arad, Timisoara. And I remember going to one orphanage and the children, as always, were ill-kempt. They were hungry, they were thin, they were cold, um, they had, didn't have proper clothes. But in this particular occasion, in this orphanage, there was a little girl, aged about 12, who just stood out from the rest. She looked after the younger ones, was really kind to them. She taught herself some English, I don't know how. She responded to us with enormous grace and graciousness. And she was so special, called Dorina, that I must keep in touch with Dorina. So I used to write to Dorina. I sent her some books and things that... How old was she at this time? She was 12 she at was the 12, time. Yeah. But through her sort of teens and so on, I kept in touch with Dorina. I wrote to her quite a lot. I sent her some things. And then she sent me a letter and said, please, would you help? I want to come to England to study social work so I can work in the field heart, of so childcare, exactly. Yeah. But then I can come back to Romania and make sure children are looked after better than I was looked after. So I helped arrange for her to come over to Britain and I met her at Heathrow Airport. And now she was now a young lady. I last saw her as a 12-year-old orphan in this orphanage. And here was Darina arriving at Heathrow Airport with great dignity, still looking very thin and she obviously was as smart as she could be, but her handbag was broken and she was very poor still, obviously, but as dignified and as lovely as ever. And I met Darina at Heathrow and I took her shopping. 
And I'll never forget, she was just so overwhelmed. She didn't really know what to do, so I helped her with her shopping. And she did in all my life. No one has ever, ever taken me shopping. Oh. And, and yeah, she it was wonderful. And she bought with her, and she showed me when she settled down into her place in England, she kept a logbook of every single letter I had ever sent her. How many did you send her, do you think? Well, letter? it was quite a fat logbook. It was quite a fat, okay, yeah. yes. And it's just so moving that this meant so much to her. And it's part of this huge privilege. We've got freedom. Yes. We can use our freedom for those who don't have it. We have relative plenty. We can use some of that plenty yes. for those who don't have it. And it's just so humbling the way that can help to make a difference. Yes, and it's a very easy to get overwhelmed by all the needs around us, but you talk about something called the sacrament of the present moment. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, as you say, one can feel overwhelmed. Sometimes one can feel very uncertain about the future. What do I do next? And again, I often find when I have the privilege of talking maybe with students who are at critical stages in their lives and are all... Um, you know, upset or worried or tormented about what to do next and where do I go and so on. And of course, there are times in life we have to make the key decisions. Will I go to university? Will I marry? Career choice and so on. But there is also a time when we're in a situation when the phrase the sacrament of the present moment, I think, comes to mind and I try to remember it. It comes from a book by Jean de Caussade, Abandonment to Divine Providence. And Jean de Caussade highlights the sacrament of the present moment. All we ever actually have is the present moment. That's the sacrament. The past has been and gone to thank God for the good things, to be sorry for the bad things. That's history. The future is not yet with us. God, I think, wants us to live in the sacrament of the present moment. And if you're where we are at the moment, where he wants us to be, then I think he wants us to give that present moment our everything. It's a sacrament. And say there are times of key decisions, but for much of the rest of the time, I often remember those two lines from that hymn, Lead Kindly Light Amid the Encircling Gloom. There are two lines, I ask not to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. And I think for much of our life, God wants us to live in the present moment that he's given us, it's all we've got, and to trust the future to yeah. him. And it's that dependence, as it were, taking him by the hand for just for today... Uh, for what lies in front of us, rather than running ahead, as you said, yes. And rather than fretting or worrying yes. about what lies ahead. Yes. I think that's a negative worry that God doesn't ask of us. No. And while at the same time having having that faith that, although it may be dark days, that the light, the, the sun will rise, the dawn will break, um, but we have to be obedient to our, to the, as you said, the sacrament of the present moment. One of the books, actually, that um, that you've written, that's uh, come out recently, is um, The Very Stones Cry Out and talk about the persecuted church, its pain, passion and praise. And, and, and you write, um, during my work with the persecuted church, I've met many people who are suffering for their faith. And I always return from my travels uh, humbled and inspired by their courage, faith, dignity and miracles of grace. Many stories of those living on the frontiers of faith illustrate spiritual blessings, such as joy, peace and love, in ways that are far from depressing. And I think we, we get scared. We get, we get when we hear about suffering and it, our instinctive reaction is to, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want that, that sadness or that pain to, if you like, 
infect me. I don't want it to come into me. So I, I want to keep away. And very much through the work of heart and your life and all the traveling that you've done to all these, I was, I was going to say that seem like God forsaken places, seem like that. Uh, you've discovered that it's actually far from depressing. And for somebody who struggles with depression as well, you found great, um, great joy and, and, and amazing stories of God's grace through that. Um, let's spend some time just hearing about some of those stories. I mean, there are so many places, there have been so many, but what, what are some of the stories that come to mind for you? Well, many of the stories are uh, described in that book, The Very Stones Will Cry Out. The book was actually born in Orissa in northern India. And some years ago, uh, Christian communities were attacked there. And Hart was the first organisation to reach Orissa. And I was walking through another destroyed church and stumbling over the rubble of the bricks and the splintered glass uh, seeing the burnt cross or crucifix, whatever kind of church it was, the slash Bible. And the phrase came to me, I've done this too often. I have walked through destroyed and devastated churches in too many places. In Indonesia, when Laska Jihad was attacking Christians there, way back in the 90s, in Nigeria, still happening now, in Sudan, still happening, in the Armenian little land of Nagorno-Karabakh. And I thought, the phrase came to me, the very stones will cry out. And I thought, oh, no, Caroline Cox, another book has just been born. You've got to write this book. So together, my longstanding friend and colleague, Ben Rogers, we wrote the book. And I learned a lot writing that book because I went and took a lot of photographs of destroyed churches and met the people in those communities and found again and again, yes, the churches are destroyed, but within hours, the Christians will be back worshipping in those churches. So the stones cry out, but they cry out with worship. And what we find again and again under persecution, yes, churches are destroyed, but the church lives, the church grows, and the church loves. And in the book, there are many stories of our brothers and sisters suffering persecution. And each chapter ends with a little message or story. And what you find is you never get a message of hatred or of bitterness or revenge. They're messages of love. And so under persecution, the church lives, grows and loves. And this goes back centuries. I think it's Polycarp who says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it seems as if under that terrible violence of persecution that it's going to finish. And yet, as it were, unless a seed, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it doesn't bear much fruit. But when it does, it, it does. it's... Uh, Amazing testimony to God's grace and goodness. So, some of the stories that, that you've heard. Yeah. Well, you meet the most wonderful, wonderful people in those situations. Um, for example, a place that no one's ever heard of, and I hadn't heard of before I went to it, called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is part of the ancient land of Armenia. Well, you've been to 83 times, I remember been that. There 83 times, yes. <laughs> and... Uh, um, Armenia suffered so much over the centuries. The first genocide of the last century when one half million Armenians were murdered by Ottoman Turkey and all of Western Armenia was annexed by Turkey is now Eastern Armenia. Oh, sorry, it's now Eastern Turkey, including Mount Ararat, which is Armenia's national symbol, is trapped by Turkish borders. Then Stalin, with his divide and rule salami tactics, cut this little bit of Eastern Armenia, put it inside Azerbaijan. When the Soviet Union imploded, Azerbaijan decided it wanted to get rid of the Armenians out of this land and began ethnic cleansing. Didn't want to go. Uh, they resisted, just 150,000 against 7 million. 
hunting rifles against tanks. It was hell on earth. I used to count for 100 grad missiles a day, pounding on the little capital city. But I was there in those days, and on one of the nights I was there, um, the grad, these are... Grad is a multiple missile rocket launcher. Fires forty missiles in every volley. So you get ten lots of Grad. Four hundred bombs are going to fall. Wow! And they started coming at seven in the morning. On that particular day, one of the bombs hit the house of the bishop, who stayed with his people all during that war. And he's a man whose life was literally saved by prayer. Whenever the shelling started seven in the morning, he would get up immediately to pray, and that wasn't easy. A bitter winter, minus 20 degrees, no electricity, no heat, no light. Any time we were warm as in bed. But he would get out to pray. On that morning, his house got a direct hit. On the bed where he would have been lying was a huge concrete slab that would have flattened him. So life saved by mm. prayer. But in the afternoon, I went to express my sympathy. And there he was. I've got a photograph of him in the book. And there's a kind of smouldering ruins of his home. And I said, Bishop, you know, nobody knows about what's happening to your people in Nagorno-Karabakh. Do you have a message for the world? Do you have a message for the church? And I'll never forget his message. In the middle of this horror situation, he said, yes, we praise God. We thank God that after 70 years of Soviet communism, when we weren't allowed a, a church, a priest or a Bible, we're free to pray again. It's true we're having to pray in the basements and cellars where people have to hide from the bombs and on the field of battle where we have to defend our families from those who would destroy us. But we are free to pray. We thank God. Then came a challenge. He said, but it's not only those who commit evil who sin, but those who know about it stand by and do nothing to try to prevent or to avert it. Right. And then came his amazing message of love. He said, but whatever demonic forces are unleashed against us in this war or anywhere in the world, we have a gospel of love. We must never hate. We must always love. We must always love. There's an amazing response that, that only the Spirit of God can produce. It, it can't come from, from And ourselves. so many like that. And then in Burma, we, I call it Burma, not Myanmar, and it's a technical name, but the local people that, yeah. prefer the name Burma because okay. it's their historic name. The other was imposed by the generals. So I call it Burma. But I've been to Burma probably about 50 times, working with the ethnic national uh, tribal groups, and they've suffered a great deal from war, from the Burmese government, the Burmese army. And just I was across the border in Burma, in Shan State, just a few weeks ago, still heavy fighting going on in northern Shan, southern Kachin states. But a little bit earlier on, when the Karen people were facing... Who are Christian people, aren't they? The Karen are Christian, the Shan are Buddhist, predominantly Kachin are Christian, Rohingya also suffering a Muslim. We're available for all with unconditional love. I think the Christian mandate must be to be available for all with aid and advocacy. Heal the sick, speak for the oppressed unconditionally, with unconditional love. So we're available for all. The Karen are predominantly... Well, there are many Buddhists, many traditional believers, many Christians... And we were across the border inside Karen State some time back and a village had been attacked and bombed. And, of course, this is jungle territory. So houses are built of wood and they just got like tinder. In this particular village, after the attack, Burmese soldiers ran through just shooting civilians. Well, in this context, we visited and most of the village was destroyed. A lovely lady called Ma Su, age 38, her home had been burnt to smithereens. She'd been wounded by the soldier. She was in someone else's home, recovering from the wounds, with a most radiant smile. 
Right. And we asked Marcy, Marcy, what do you feel about the soldier who shot you? And she just said, I love him. It says in the Bible we should love our enemies. So, of course, I love him. He is my brother. Wow. That makes my spiritual stature feel microscopic. Yes. To love the soldier who shoots you. And she meant it. Her face was radiant with love. You know, only when you really cross your frontier of fear, you go to meet our brothers and sisters on front lines of faith and freedom. You meet these heroes and heroines. And you, I suppose, you encounter the spirit of God at work. Absolutely. That you wouldn't otherwise see. And I think it gives me some confidence in the Bible, that phrase in the Bible, God must be a very help in trouble. Yes. He must be. That's right, yes. Because just to be able to respond to evil in such a way of love must be God's redemptive love in action. Yes. Another of your heroes is um, Bishop Moses Deng. Tell us a little bit about him. He's a wonderful Anglican bishop in South Sudan. Now, in the previous war, when the Islamist uh, regime, headed by President al-Bashir, took power by military coup and declared military jihad against all who opposed it, it began in 89, went on to 2005, in which two million died, four million were displaced, thousands taken into slavery. One of the main battlegrounds was in the state of Bar Ghazal in southern Sudan, but it adjoins northern Sudan, and it's flat open terrain. So forces of 2,000 strong of government of Sudan, professional soldiers, the Mujahideen, jihad warriors, the Murahaleen, the local um, tribesmen who the government of Sudan would equip with fast horses and Kalashnikov rifles, they come in 2,000 strong and sweep through the areas, destroy everything, take women and children to slavery, kill the men. It was a diocese that was devastated by And what about are we talking about? Between 89 and 2005, but everything was destroyed. Right. And many families have still lost loved ones to slavery. Well, Bishop Daniel Deng, the main uh, sort of town in this part is called Wau, W-A-U, and you say, wow, when you go there, because it yes. is a place that was so devastated. He's the Anglican bishop. Got a huge task to try to rebuild clinics, schools, with virtually nothing, get agriculture going. A tough, tough diocese. But recently his job has been made worse because people have been fleeing into his diocese from the Nuba Mountains to the north, where the regime in Khartoum is still bombing its people, carrying out genocide of Africans and Christians and Muslims who don't support him. That war is still going on there. So people have fled into Bishop Moses' diocese. And they've given them such as they had to share, but they've run out. So Bishop Moses sent us in little heart an SOS. People are dying. Please re-give us money for food. Well, with a heavy heart, I replied to the bishop and said, Bishop, you know, we're a tiny organisation. All we can give you is £10,000. I wish I was Bill Gates. <laughs> but he sent back a message. It'd be wonderful. 10000 would buy a lot of sorghum. That's their kind of main stay food crop. So anyhow, we sent the £10,000. What amount was this? About a couple of years ago. Two years, yes. And then we visited. And the bishop met us with a lovely South Sudanese smile. And he said, thank you so much. That £10,000 made it possible for us to buy a lot of sorghum, saved a lot of lives, but then our own sorghum harvest ripened early. We were able to share our sorghum with them, so we didn't need to spend all your money. Would you like me to return it? That is incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. He said, with your permission, I'd rather use it to buy tools and seeds so they can grow their own food. Yeah. But it's obviously what we said. But one of the amazing things is, in that 
wiped out diocese in terms of infrastructure, resources, everything. People living in extreme poverty and difficulty with refugees now fleeing in. The bishop and his team have recently confirmed over 3,000 new Christians in the Anglican Church. We could do with 3,000 confirmations in London. Yes. But there in these remote areas, the yeah. church grows. That's, yeah, amazing stories, yeah, of God's grace. And it, it brings to my mind, really, in the sense of we need some kind of theology of suffering, some way of, as, as I said earlier on, is our instinctive reaction is when we see people suffering, we hear about these atrocities around the world in far-flung places um, to switch off the TV or change the channel or or look at something more light-hearted or, or not think about it. And yet we say we have a faith in God, we have a faith in Christ. And yet it seems like we want something that's very sort of, um, I'm trying to find the right word, that, that's, that's anaesthetized from the reality of life. How do you think we should sort of develop a, a more mature theology of suffering? And what does the Bible tell us about that? Well, my faith is challenged again and again when I'm in these situations. And I'm so it doesn't go away, that's which is, which is fair to say, yeah. Mm, I, you know, I'm, I'm challenged by it. It's for, for real and it's tough. And I remember on one of the visits to South Sudan in the previous war, and I'd been walking through the killing fields, and we were near a market with the government of Sudan forces and the Mujahideen attacked at 7 o'clock one morning, and they rounded everybody up and they just slaughtered them and the bodies were all there rotting in the river. And then we'd walk through the killing fields and more corpses. And the last day, um, there were no buildings, everything being destroyed. You had to live in a tent. I was sitting outside my tent and I was feeling absolutely harrowed by what I'd seen. And it really challenged my faith big time. That the fundamental questions, how can a God of love who is omniscient, who knows everything, is omnipotent, how can he allow this suffering, particularly of innocent women and children? And my faith was challenged. Then for some funny reason, I was sitting there outside my tent in 40 degrees plus in sort of sub-Saharan Sudan, and my mind came back to Britain and how we keep Christmas back here in England. Yes. And I thought, well, of course at Christmas we celebrate. What a wonderful message, God loving us so much. Jesus came to be born as a human baby to live among us. What an amazing faith of love of a loving God. But then my thought went on to how we celebrate Christmas. And then we have Boxing Day as a bank holiday in England, and then you go on and celebrate New Year and all those parties of New Year. But if in that Christmas time frame we forget that not so long after Mary was celebrating the birth of Jesus, a lot of other mothers were weeping their hearts out because Herod had killed their sons. Mm. And if we don't factor in that equation of the suffering of the mothers whose kids have been murdered into our equation of Christmas. It's not surprising in comfortable Christianity we don't have a theology that can deal with the modern Herods and deal with contemporary evil. Yes, because it is evil at the end of the day. There is such a reality as evil. You can't negotiate with it. I mean, you see it in ISIS today, we see it in Boko Haram. There is such a thing as evil. But then my thoughts went on to when Mary had to suffer the death of her son Jesus on the cross and stand at the foot of the cross. And as it said in the Bible, the sword would pierce her heart Mm. also. And she stood there as her son died in agony on the cross. She was there loving, helpless, suffering. And then my thought 
came to, well, maybe it should be part of a Christian's calling to be prepared to attend whatever kind of Calvary. She was there in Calvary as Jesus died on the cross. But there in the cross was some meaning of the suffering. We should be prepared to be alongside whatever kind of suffering yes. there is, whatever kind of Calvaries God may call us to attend, and to be there like Mary, in love, feeling hopeless and helpless and full of grief, but at least to be there alongside. And maybe there we will find some answer to the meaning of suffering, particularly when we see our brothers and sisters enduring their gardens of Gethsemane, their Calvary, with such grace and dignity, and often with even you know, peace, and as they worship, knowing they could be dead tomorrow, with joy. Joy. And so as disciples of Christ, we need to have, we, we, although we instinctively want to run away from suffering, and I'm not saying we should go seeking it, but the things that God puts in our lives, you know, there's the, there's, there's the dramatic suffering of things going around in the world. There's the suffering that we have to deal with in our own personal lives or internally if we struggle with depression, um, that God has a purpose through it. And it's almost as if we're embracing that and then seeing his grace and his love and his goodness works with that. So you can only have a resurrection if you have a death. You can only have, as it were, life if you see that, if you go through that death. Um, thank you, you know, Caroline. That yeah, goes back, I think, to a phrase used earlier on, mm. um, that whatever stage we're at in life, whether we're students or whether we're at retirement age mm. or as old as me, <laughs> I think that saying which means a lot to me that God doesn't need our ability, he wants our availability. Then he can give us the ability to do what he wants us to do. So whatever stage in life we're at, I think it's a question of being trying to be available to God. If he opens the door in front of us, it's not something we contrived or manipulated, but that door opens. As is what's very much happened in your life. To go through that door, because unless you go through that door, yes. and it won't necessarily be taking you to the killing fields of Sudan. Mm. God doesn't call us all to that kind of availability. But to be available, whatever it is, maybe something in our local community, but to be available to God. And then we will find perhaps that he gives us the ability to respond as he wants us to yes. respond. And some of that may well be being alongside people suffering in some way or other. As you yes. say, for us, it's been in the killing fields, but also the Muslim women suffering back here in the UK. Mm. Just being open and available to whatever it is that God is calling us to be available for. Yes. And so often it'll have suffering at the heart of it yes. because that's where love needs to be. It needs to be shown and manifest. So courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward, still afraid. Uh, and your life has exemplified that in so many ways and such an encouragement and inspiration to us. Um, how, if, if people are interested in the work of heart, how, how can they find out more? And what are sort of your particular needs for the organisation and ways that people can help? Thank you. Um, well, we have a website, www.heart.humanitarianaidreliefTrust. So www.heart-uk.org. And we'll have a link to that on, 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 Thank you very uh, much. on, on the website. Love to hear from you. Um, we're Christian. We work for people of suffering from oppression, whatever their faith tradition. But being Christians, I think we must make the priority prayer. And that's one thing that always humbles me so much. We're with our brothers and sisters suffering persecution. They may be destitute, have no food, no clothes, no medicine. They're we always ask people their priorities, given the dignity of choice. And so often they will say prayer 
and I'd be asking for the food or the medicine, but they asked for prayer. And I think me and Hart should reflect that because, again, we have a God who has ideas beyond anything we can ever have. We have a new CEO in Hart. I've moved on from being CEO to being president. I still hope to be available, uh, obviously, for speaking and in Parliament and visiting our partners. But please pray for Hart for the right way forward. That will be true to what God calls us to be. And who's your new CEO? Who's that? It's called Corinna. Okay. And so please pray that Hart will move forward in the way God calls us to move forward. And, of course, we do need help, practical help. We love volunteers. We have, obviously, we need finance. We can't do very much without the money. And if people were motivated to give standing orders or regular giving is even more useful than one-off because then we can undertake commitments to our partners, which we know we can follow through. And even a little goes a very long way because we work through local partners. They're the heroes and heroines. They're mustard seed people. The multiplier effect of what they do with the little we can give them is an example by Bishop Moses, but all our partners. Mm. Uh, we're not wealthy, they're not wealthy, but they make transformational changes to their communities. And just look at our website if people have any particular skills or professional um, gifts that they'd like to offer, we'd love to hear from you. We're very small. There's four and a half of us in heart. And sometimes you look at the needs in the world around us at the scale of the needs which our partners confront and other partners we're not at the moment working with and for, you could feel overwhelmed. You could feel almost paralyzed. Mm. But we have a little motto in heart. I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. That's beautiful. And together just say, we, Let's just say that again. Just say that one more time. I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. Mm. And if together we all do something, we can have that privilege of making at least a little bit of a difference to some of the people, some of the forgotten people in some of the darkest parts of our world today. And or here at home, some of the people suffering in very closed communities in a very different kind of darkness. Yes. And I think very much the work of, of work you do as well exemplifies the importance of bringing together uh, deeds and words as well and speaking up as well, which very much you've done. Um, just thinking of... Uh, is it um, Edmund Burke who says the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to remain silent and again you very much exemplify that and it's a challenge to us all that again I think it's always been dark days we live in a dark world um, and to, to remember to speak up for the injustice to be a voice for the voiceless which you seek to do which heart seeks to do as well so thank you again so much Caroline thank you for time and again uh, again it's www.hart hrt-uk.org Thank you very much and uh, thank you for joining us uh, on this on this program. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour, head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>